in verses. As we get close to the end of our series, we've entitled Solomon and the Queen. Solomon and the Queen. So let's read it again. When the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendants of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believe not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men. Happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices, very great store and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir brought in from Ophir great plenty of almug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almug trees pillars for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, harps also and psalteries for singers. And there came no such almug trees, nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. We are obviously from the previous messages looking at the queen in the similitude of sinners who come to Christ. Some come and leave still lost sinners. Others come to Christ, believe by faith, embrace Christ, have a personal relationship with Christ, and are given the gift of eternal life. So the queen has characteristics here that obviously depict a sinner who is saved by grace, who came a skeptic, a doubter, a wonderer, whatever, but by faith believes and then is in awe and in astonishment of two things, really, that stand out here. Not only the greatness of Solomon, but also the goodness of Solomon. And that's the thing that we as believers will always do, is stand in awe and astonishment of both the greatness of God and the goodness of God. It's red now. All right. So we're going to look a little further in what we've seen concerning the queen and just kind of rehearse a little bit. We see that she heard of the fame of Solomon and she came to see, again, in that skeptical unbelieving of what she had heard manner, And we discussed also how she came prepared to prove 
Solomon, even with hard questions. We discussed also how she came with a very great train of very valuable gifts. And then last time we got to the most intimate part of this, and the thing that really makes a difference between sinners who hear the gospel, read the Bible, come in contact with Christ through the gospel or the church and don't believe, and those who do believe, it comes down to a personal communing with God of what's in your heart. And of course, every sinner that has been obedient to the gospel, you, if you're saved today, you obeyed the gospel in that from the heart you repented and believed upon Christ. So the heart's where it all takes place. The heart's where the difference is made between those who believe, that don't believe, who accept the account of the gospel and obey it, meet the terms and conditions of the gospel, and those who deny it and go away unbelieving like the rich young ruler and therefore make God a liar. Today we want to press beyond what... We did last week with her communing with all that was in her heart and point out to you that really when she got there and it says she was come to Solomon in verse 2, she really did two things. The first, what we covered last week, she communed with with him of all that was in her heart. And then it says in verse 3, Solomon told her all her questions, there's not anything hid He answered everything above and beyond the answers that she even expected she could get. And the second thing she did, besides communing with him of all that was in her heart, is seen in verse 4. It says, She saw the house that he had built and Solomon's wisdom. And that's what we want to look at today. Obviously, she had heard about his wisdom. She came and proved him with her questions, and his wisdom was verbally manifested unto her. He answered everything, every question, above and beyond. And not only did she just hear him, but she saw the evidence of that wisdom. Did she not? How did she see it? Two ways. In the house that he had built and in the works of his kingdom. As is described down there uh, in verse 5 particularly. Okay? So that's what we want to look at today. It appears that from what is said in verse 5, she was just amazed at the efficiency by which Solomon's kingdom operated. And that would be very natural because people can only do the best they can do with what they have to do with and nobody had the wisdom and understanding to do like Solomon did. So having this great wealth of knowledge and understanding of all things, no wonder that he was probably the best, call it whatever you want to, a president, a superintendent, a manager, uh, whatever. But this was about as efficient as it can get on this earth. 
because it had a man at the top that was smarter than anybody else. He had that kind of wisdom. So when she reads and sees all of how things are operating on a day-by-day basis in this kingdom, she is absolutely amazed. And the thing I think she was amazed at, which uh, I'm always a very particular observer of, is the efficiency by which it operated. Now, governments and kingdoms are pretty typical inefficient. We know how inefficient government can be. But it seems like Solomon had things operating just like clockwork. Very efficient. I would have loved to have seen it myself, wouldn't you? I mean, I love efficient things, and I despise inefficient things, whether it's me or whatever, because inefficiency equals one thing, and that's waste. <laughs> it's either a waste of time, of resources, money, or energy. Inefficiency. I just, uh, that's one thing that's going to be beautiful about heaven. It'll be above Solomon's kingdom. Uh, you're going to see the most efficient thing. In fact, the millennial kingdom on earth is going to be the most efficient thing any of us have ever seen in our lives so again she heard she came she saw she heard his wisdom and she saw that wisdom in action did she not well likewise when we come to christ and we see the gospel and we see christ in the gospels and in the new testament we see those same two things Remember, a greater than Solomon. So Christ's wisdom as God and the Son of God excelled what Solomon had. By Jesus' own words, a greater than Solomon is here. And a verse of Scripture that I've always loved and camped out on in that regard is Luke chapter 4 and verse 22. And that verse says, uh, when Jesus read there in the synagogue, Uh, all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Now, again, we're not just talking about the tone of Jesus' voice. We're talking about the substance and the oratory and the way that it literally flowed out of his mouth. He was the living word and he spoke the divine word. And let me tell you, he never stuttered. He never stammered. He never never had to say ah or uh or any, I mean it flowed like sweet water out of an artesian well. And that's just always gripped me, that little phrase there, gracious words. Jesus never spoke anything but gracious words. When he spoke in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees in that hard way, they were still gracious words. Because he was telling them the truth honestly and not in any spirit of maliciousness. So... It would have been something for the words of Solomon to fall upon the human ear. The queen was quite taken by that to the point there was no spirit in her after communion. But again, we can only wonder what it would have been like to have heard Jesus spoke just a few words to your human ear. Whether you believed it or not, 
Whether you were convinced and convicted it was true or not, there was something different about it and everybody noticed it. Gracious, authoritative, truthful, honest, candid, rebuking, but perfect always. Quite the thing. I can't wait to hear him speak someday. Can you? And we'll have better ears then than we got now. And the other thing was not just what Jesus said that people heard that testified of who he was and of his wisdom, but what else? Same thing as Solomon, what he did. And what did he do? Well, the Gospels all are in agreement, of course, as they are on everything, that he was a man who went about doing good. That good is evident in what we call most of the time miracles, right? John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles that he did. So as the queen of Sheba heard Solomon, she also saw that wisdom in his acts, in his kingdom. How things worked, operated day by day, right? Same thing with Christ. People saw day in and day out, not only hearing the words, but the miracles and things that Jesus did that testified again as to who he was, his greatness and his goodness. Six and two of John, a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. However, verse 26 of that same verse, Jesus rebuked some who followed him. And it wasn't just because of his words, nor of his Miracles. He says, Verily, verily, I'll send you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. But again, that's another point, isn't it? You can be benefited even in an unbelieving state. And that we've said it before. Where the gospel and Christ and the Bible goes, people benefit even if they don't come to repentance and faith in Christ. There is the benefit of salt wherever it goes in that respect. All right, well, let's look at what the queen saw. That'll be our focus today as we make this similitude or comparative resemblance to Christ and what people should see about Christ and those who make up his kingdom. Again, verse 4, she saw... When the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built, and he goes on to talk about other things. Our point is that the gospel is not just to be heard, but seen. Just like verse 4 says here. How could she see Solomon's wisdom? She couldn't look into the gray matter in his head and see all of that wisdom. She could hear it uttered out of his mouth, which she did, but at the same time, all she had to do was look around 360 in his kingdom, and his wisdom was everywhere. 
It was manifested in the things described in verse 5, how they ate, how they set the table, how they cleaned up the table, who provided for the table each and every day and each and every month and so forth and so on, who took out the trash, who cleaned up the dishes, who was getting ready. It just was amazing. I I saw something just, in fact, uh, last night about one of our aircraft carriers and the way that, that that thing operates, a documentary in World War II. It's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. I mean, you know, I've often wondered how... how I, I still don't understand it, even though I saw it. How big they are, how many men they're on there, how many meals it takes a day, they have to wash their clothes, they, everything's self-sufficient on an aircraft carrier, and yet they can send off planes real fast and get them back real fast and carry all the ammunition and all the fuel. And all. It's amazing. But if it's going to work, it has to be efficient down to the drop of a pen. That's what I'm... I'm glad I saw that last night, preaching on this subject, because it again, I was already thinking of the efficiency of this kingdom, and, and again, that is just amazing. It takes a lot of work. That does not happen by itself. And Solomon had the wisdom to make it happen in that regard. So she not only heard the wisdom, but she saw it in what he took that knowledge and did with it. How he had applied it throughout his kingdom. And likewise, it says she saw it in the house that he had built. Well, I'm sure that's about the first thing you would have seen. Remember, Solomon built the temple, right? They hadn't had a temple before. Israel never had one. They still had the tabernacle, you know, the portable places and things uh, all the way back from Moses. So the temple that Solomon built, which remember took seven years, it's described back in some previous chapters. I mean, immaculate, beautiful, elaborate. At the same time, it was original, original. And who knows the value that could be placed upon it from all of the best resources to be had at that time. Again, all that gold from Hiram, you know, and the trees for the pillars. and I mean, the best of everything is what made up that house that he built. I'm, I mean, there are reconstructions of it that you can get pictures of and look at if you really want to know and see from what the Bible describes, what people show that it It's absolutely amazing. She would have been impressed. Well, there's something more impressive than that temple, isn't there? Because we covered this in a sermon way back. Christ built a house, didn't he? The house that we call the church. Just as a house inhabits people, the temple inhabited and carried on worship, and you know all the similarities there. The church is what Christ built during his personal ministry, and it is the church when the makeup of the church, the people of God that worship him, that come to it, that assemble together, and that work in his service. Is that not right? Quickly, let's run through that. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus before He ascended said, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And what I want to stress in that verse is, Ye shall be witnesses. 
When you read verse 5 of 1 Kings chapter 10, all those people who were serving Solomon in one capacity or the other were witnesses of his wisdom by their work. You got that? If you didn't get that, might as well leave or shut up years because you're not going to get anything in this message. That's the crux of it. So let me say it again. Everything she saw in verse 5, those who were serving under Solomon, no matter what capacity, if they were Solomon's right-hand counselor or if they were bringing a cup and pouring tea or wine or something like that, it don't matter. They were exhibiting by their deeds in that kingdom the wisdom of the man at the top, Solomon. So likewise, Christ's church is his testimony upon this earth, has been ever since he left and left it here. And as he said here, the Holy Ghost empowered it on the day of Pentecost and it continues to function. You remember the promise that he gave of it? Matthew's Gospel chapter 16 where he said in verse 16 there, when Christ, or rather Peter answered the question that thou art Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said in verse 17, flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you, but my Father in heaven. Verse 18, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, that answer that he gave of who Christ was in Christ's work, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Solomon's temple ended up being destroyed. Christ's church has yet to be destroyed and will not be destroyed or else Christ lied. Christ continues to build his church. Build those that are in existence and build others into existence. Christ does that exactly as he promised. So Solomon built the temple again, just rehashing that a little bit from the previous message. Christ built his church. The temple was a witness of this wisdom of Solomon and everybody that worked within the kingdom was a witness of Solomon's wisdom. So the church is the witness of Christ, of the gospel, and of his wisdom that he had when he was here upon the earth. It is manifested now in and through the church. We mentioned that temple was very beautiful, valuable, and elaborate. How, va- how much value would you put on the Lord's church? You can't put a value on it. If you can put a value on the love of God, then you can put a value on the church. But the bottom line is Ephesians 5.25 says, Even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, infinite value. There is no institution, has been, will be ever any greater on this earth than the church that Jesus Christ built and is the head of. No greater one. Forget it. The Christ loves the church. Christ receives glory in the church. Christ works in the church. Christ's testimony to the world by the power of the Holy Spirit is in and through His church. Am I getting through? This is every time we meet a solemn assembly as we witness the head of this body Not me as pastor, Jesus Christ as Lord. So the church is to be that very thing. That very thing. A witness and a testimony. 
The church is commissioned to preach the gospel, right? Matthew 28, we have it written over our door here to remind us as we go out the door to preach the gospel. What are we doing when we are preaching the gospel? It is a, the gospel is a declaration of our head, our master, our Lord, Jesus Christ. We declare Him, His wisdom, His doctrine. That's it. Don't go beyond that. Men's denominations declare their doctrine and their opinions and their words and their philosophies. That's never been the church's job. The church that Jesus built is to declare Christ, Him crucified, His wisdom, His doctrine. We don't just like it, we love it. Because it's His and it's truth. And it scares the church and the members of Jesus Christ to death to think about altering any way, shape, or form, and especially this preacher, the preaching and teaching and doctrine of Christ. That's what we want. And we don't want nothing else. Don't add to it. Don't take from it. That's our responsibility. That's our honor. That's our privilege in that regard. And we... As the temple and the people who worked under Solomon in his kingdom, we are commanded to be visible witnesses of our Lord and Savior. Are we not? Are we not to be Christian? Are we not to be Christ-like? Are we not to have the mind of Christ, the thinking of Christ, the actions of Christ, the words of Christ? Of course we are. Jesus said that in John's Gospel chapter 3 about how we are to be living witnesses. John 13. I'm sorry I said John 3. I meant John 13. Let me remind you of that. We are a church of the living God and uh, we need to be reminded of what our testimony is to be to the world and it should be noticed by the world as Jesus said. John 13 verse 34 and 35 A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one to another. should be very obvious. should be very obvious. Anything calls itself a church of Jesus Christ and doesn't have love is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Jesus said, by this shall all men know. James said in James chapter 1 and verse 22. Let me read that to you. Again, a vivid reminder. James 1 and 22. Be ye doers of the word and don't hearers only, deceiving your own selves. The queen didn't just come and sit at his feet and heard. She opened her eyes and looked around. She could hear it. She could see it. The church of Jesus Christ is both to be heard and seen. Again, I go back to the old phrase. I can't remember who said it. Preach the gospel. And if you have to, use words. The gospel should be evident in our lives as well as in our worship services. As well as in our witness to Christ. How is that to be done? It's very simple. It's a process that's called sanctification. It's a process that's called uh, sanctification because it means to be ye holy as I am holy. It means to be sanctified in our lives, to live a holy, obedient 
life, manner of life, behavior, conduct our lives in a way that sets us apart from everybody else. Let me remind you of that, church. Can I do that? In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19 we read, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Got that? That there be no blemish, no stain upon the church of God and the witness of Christ. Peter put it this way. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. He said, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. You got that? I mean, you know, that, that may, when you get read that part, you may start puffing up like a balloon with each little compliment, you know. And in your mind, but it's all grace. Look at what it says next. This is for a reason. That ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So as the queen observed those who served in the kingdom and how they went about that and their work and their duty and their obedience and their diligence and their honestness and their timelessness in this, or timeliness in all this, she was very impressed. Folks, the church that Jesus started is meant to impress the world. Now, when I say that, I mean it in this manner we've just read. Distinct, Holy, unique, separate, apart, standing out, a light that shines, and the salt of the earth. It should be very very obvious in that regard. So, we are to be seen, and the gospel is to be seen as well as heard. Some things are said there in verse 5 concerning what she saw. She said the meat of his table. And you can go back over in those other chapters and read about how that meat was provided. What it took to feed everybody. You know, just one day in Solomon's king. Where it come from. Who provided for it. How they did it. Etc. Etc. But again, I want to make a point here. The meat of his table. Okay. This means the daily provision. Daily food. Right? I mean, those there had to eat every day. How many times they eat? I don't know what they did in those days, but, uh, you know, there had to be daily provision and substance. Well, it's no different in the church of Jesus Christ, is it? The church is held up and held together by Christ the head and the Holy Spirit that indwells those who are in it, Right? And contrary to what some may think, or perhaps more appropriately many may have forgotten, we don't just plug in our batteries for a couple hours on Sunday and that's good enough. No. When we're not assembled in church capacity, we as the members still need daily sustenance. Divine food. The Word of God, the Holy Spirit, the grace of Christ every day in our lives that our light may shine as individuals. The church can only shine forth through us. The church doesn't just shine forth when we assemble. 
The church shines or doesn't shine when we leave the church assembly and go out into the world. We are individual lights as well as a collective light. And it don't matter what spot we occupy within the church, we have this duty and this responsibility. In verse 5 there, it mentions about servants, ministers, cupbearers. You know, there's everybody forever duty. And it reminds me of Ephesians chapter 4. He has set some in the church who? First apostles and prophets and preachers and teachers and evangelists and blah, blah. I mean, you know, so it doesn't matter what part we occupy. It's what we do that is to testify of Christ. And let me say, what we don't do that we should do or neglect to do testifies, but it's in a wrong way, isn't it? Our actions, whether obedient or disobedient, testify of the church we're a member of and who's the head of that church, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's seen over there in verse 5 by the sitting, the attendance, and the apparel. These are just things that, again, you would notice, you know, almost like in a restaurant, except it's a much higher level, you know. If you went to a state dinner of the President of the United States, that's kind of what we're talking about. The way that thing is laid out and the way everybody does and the way they're dressed, the formality and all of that, you know. Well, there's to be a formality about the church of Jesus Christ and how we conduct ourselves, how, what we say, what we do, where we go, where we don't go, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, etc., etc., And lastly, over there, it mentions, and his ascent by which he went up to the house of God, the temple. And again, that kind of plays back on verse 1. When she heard about Solomon's fame concerning the Lord, the religious part of this. Well, that word ascent there, you know, we talk about ascent, ascending, you know, like you go upstairs or what have you. Obviously, his approach to the house of God, to the temple of God. Well, how did anybody approach God in worship at the temple? With an offering. That word literally refers to and is translated lots of times, burnt offering. Here it's translated to sin, I think the only time in the Old Testament, if I remember correctly, But again, Solomon did not worship. Solomon did not approach God without the proper way, which was an offering, a burnt offering. And again, that's to be the testimony of the Lord's church. Our testimony is what? Literally like Paul said, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, no other way. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. The church testimony is Christ and Him crucified. Our testimony of the gospel is the just for the unjust. Solomon would offer a burnt offering. That's a substitute for himself. The proclamation of the church of Jesus Christ is Christ crucified, our suffering substitute. And that's it. That's it. We, because of His sacrifice, sacrifice. Romans chapter 12. It is our reasonable service as believers, right? To exemplify Christ's sacrifice in sacrificing to Him our works, our obedience, and also to do that to who else? Our fellow man. That's to be the testimony of the Lord's church.
Before we run out of time here, I want to show you something else that she mentions there in the 10th chapter. And it says in verse 8, those who are occupied in the work and the duty in verse 7, which let me say again, don't you think it would have been a privilege in Solomon's kingdom? I mean, if you wanted a good job, <laughs> there wasn't any better jobs to be had than to be employed by King Solomon in that day. I mean, he had the, he had the best employment there was to be had because everything was the best of the best. And while there was work to do, it was work. Don't you think those people, for the most part, thought it was a privilege? Well, that's the way we're to serve the Lord in our kingdom and, in, and through the visible local church, is it not? We're not only to do our duty, but we're to do it with diligence and with joy. She mentions in verse 8, Happy are these men, happy are these servants which stand continually before you to hear these wisdom. What's that talking about? They're not just be, be doing it because they'll be beaten if they don't do it. They are more than willing to do it and count it a privilege to do it. That's like having a job you enjoy. That's like having good bosses on your job. I've been privileged to have some, and I've, I never let that go. It's, it's, it's a blessing. If you've got a good boss... That's a blessing. You can serve willingly and eagerly and diligently and so forth and so on. And folks, I want to say to you today, again, there's nobody employed in a greater work that should be any happier than the church of Christ and His people. You've heard it said by me many times, and I'm sure other preachers all, nobody has a right to be any happier than the people of God. We got more to be happy about than the rest of the unbelieving world put together. And she said happy. But let me just remind you here, the world gives happiness and it's only temporal. The Lord gives joy and it stays with you and lasts forever. There is a difference, okay? So again, in fact, the word happiness here that we read when it says happy are these, uh, it literally means blessedness. So again, it's a blessed thing to be a part of it, to be engaged in it, to have this man at the top and to be a part of it, whatever it may be. So to be blessed of God is to rejoice in God, to rejoice in the goodness of God, the grace of God, the salvation of God in Christ, and it's called simply Christian joy in the lives of of believers who have been sanctified by the Word and by the Holy Spirit. Rejoice evermore was what Paul said to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Christians can do that. Martyrs have rejoiced while they were dying. Stephen, in a sense, was rejoicing when he was dying. He saw, the right, saw on the right hand of God the Son of Man standing. In that Peter puts it this way. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. He says, For as much as you know we were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by the traditions of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. I mean, that's our joy. Right there. And again, nobody can take your joy. This world can take your happiness. 
You can be happy one moment and unhappy the next minute by the circumstances of things or people in this world. I won't go into it, but anything from the weather to a relative or a friend. But the joy that Christ gives and that we have in Christ, in serving Christ, in believing Christ, in living for Christ is insurmountable and unsurpassed. So, again, what a terrible witness it is to tell somebody, yeah, I'm a member of, I'm a Christian and I'm a member of such and such a church and you go around with your jaw dragging the ground never smiling, not happy and, and gloomy and pessimistic and, you know, no. No. We have every reason to be joyful. And again, I'm not, don't get the happiness thing. That's so fickle because it's based on circumstances. Our joy is based on something eternal. That's the sacrifice of Christ, the hope we have in Christ, and the promises yet to be inherited. Well, let's go back to the conclusion again, back to our text. The queen, needless to say, as we said last week, was impressed. Right? Not only what she heard, but what she saw. Christ, the gospel, his church, and his people should make an impression, a very notable impression in the world. If the church doesn't make some kind of impression in the world, then the light has gotten pretty dim, hasn't it? That's our duty to keep our lamps trimmed and burning brightly and the church burning brightly. We should make an impression in the world. How do we do that? What do we do? By being obedient to what we've been called to do. To take the gospel in word and in deed to a lost and dying world. To declare the greatness of and the goodness of God. She mentions there, uh, where is it, verse uh, 7, the latter part. She says, The half wasn't told me, Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the news of what I heard. And prosperity there literally again means good, good or goodness is how that's usually translated. So she was impressed by the greatness and goodness. That's what we're supposed to display, folks. Not our goodness, not our greatness, but the goodness and greatness of our Lord and Savior and head of this body, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to be the light that we are to declare. After all, that's what Christ showed the world, did He not, when He was here? In word and in deed, He was the light of the world, and that light shone brightly through his obedience to the will of the Father. Likewise, so it is to be the church. Uh, one verse I want to throw at you before I close here is, I just got to throw it in here. It needs a place to fit, and I really don't know where to fit it in. I've started to put it in the front, in the middle, and the last. But anyway, I don't want to let it slip, so I'll give it to you, and you put it wherever you want to in your mind. But when you read about all of that in verse 5 and 6 there, what she saw, I could not help... But think about the scripture in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, 40, that says, Paul to the Corinthian church, let all things be done decently and in order. 
I got the impression that everything that was done at Solomon's table and in his kingdom was done decently or honestly and in order. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying there wasn't people in there that were, you know, were hard to get along with, didn't like what they were doing, griping, complaining. No, I, that's always true. But for the most part and in general, Solomon had things operating decently and in order. And no matter who he was, you couldn't escape noticing that. But the scripture I want to close with today is Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. And I'm going to back up for context and read, start at 11. I'll read it and we'll close. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's us. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. And if you have the joy of the Lord, you can't do anything with murmurings and disputings. You have to lose your joy to do things with murmurings and disputings. Here's the point. That you may be blameless and harmless. The sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. The queen was so impressed by what she heard and saw that it's like all the life went out of her and it changed her life forever. Likewise, the church of Jesus Christ, we who make up the kingdom of God and the local body of Christ, have that responsibility to be blameless, harmless, as we declare to be the sons of God, that we do not show forth sin and blemishes, but we remain pure and a light that shines, that others may, quote-unquote, see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. May God give us that grace to make an impression in the world to glorify our Savior.